From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, grab one of these open phone lines. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to talk to you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 2985 and uh, if you'd like to send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And normally our host on Monday, Father John Tregilio, he had uh, a, another engagement that uh, pulled him away from us, but fear not. We have the ever-ready Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, who's had a couple of weeks to rest up after his Lenten sojourning, and uh, he is bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and ready to roll. Deacon, how are you? I'm doing well, Jack. It's great to be back on again. So do you and your wife get along? You finally have a chance to figure to find out if you guys get along or not now that you've been <laughs> off the road? <laughs> well, you know, there is that saying, Jack, absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, there you go. Not always a bad thing. Yeah, but yeah, one exactly. Thing we, we have been doing, Jack, is, uh, you know, our 30th wedding anniversary is next year. And so we've been sitting down kind of thinking about what we want to do, want to do something special. Do you you married her someplace? when she was two years old? <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? She'll, she still looks like she does on the day we were married. I'm the one with the gray beard. Yeah, Father Time passes her right by and kicks you in the shins every time, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, what you were starting to say in, in preparation for your 30th anniversary. Yeah, we're just, we're just thinking about what we want to do. Um, we want to go to Europe. Uh, or Right now we're leaning toward a actually a, a, a trans-Canadian uh, train trip. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, starting beautiful. in Vancouver yeah. and going out to uh, uh, Montreal and Halifax. That's what we're looking at right now. So, Yeah, that would be beautiful. That would be. Have you been to uh, northern Quebec? Uh, I've, I've spoken in Montreal before to the Melkite Catholic Church. I did their uh, national youth uh, convention mm-hmm. a few years back. But uh, that's really the only time. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Area. If you have an, if you if you choose to go that route, and if you have an opportunity, I know it's not right around the corner, but Quebec City is Europe in North America. First of all, beautiful, and mm-hmm. uh, the Church Saint Anne de Beaupre, uh, site of a miracle uh, where some uh, soldiers were saved on the Saint Lawrence Seaway uh, back in the day. This is one of the most spectacular, awe-inspiring uh, churches that I've ever been in. It's really spectacular. So oh, that's my advice to you. 
All right. Good to know. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We got some emails here. Richard writes in, what is the Catholic belief in the Holy Spirit? When you commit a mortal sin, does the Holy Spirit leave you? Uh, okay. So we uh, we believe uh, about the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the three divine persons that share one divine nature. The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share love and life between each other. And the, and the Father and the Son give life to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives life back to the Father and the Son. And, and it's beautiful what we call the circumcision of the Trinity. So when it comes to mortal sin, remember, in order for a sin to be mortal, three things must be present and true at the same time. The sin must be grave matter. Typically, the benchmark is violation of one of the Ten Commandments. The sin must also be done with full knowledge and deliberate consent of the will. When that happens, we lose the sanctifying grace that we need to get to heaven. We have not lost the Holy Spirit. What we've done is we've chosen not to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So we've lost sanctifying grace, which is the grace we need to get to heaven. But we still remember, we still have the mark of baptism, right? And confirmation, which leave what's called an indelible mark on the soul. So by going to the sacrament of reconciliation, we restore the, the uh, sanctifying grace. And we also have sacramental grace that allows us to cooperate more deeply with the Holy Spirit so we will not fall back into a mortal sin uh, the next time, to, to allow us to cooperate more fully with, with what Christ wants to do in and for us so that we can truly be living sacraments of salvation. Well, when you really when you get right down to it and you look the lengths that our Lord goes to to reach out to us, and we still don't get it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, God no longer wanted to be far away from us. He wanted to touch us with his own hands and love us with his own heart. And so as John tells us in the prologue of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us because he wanted personal, intimate, loving, life-giving communion and relationship with us. Adam says that he has a relative who believes in the rapture, and he wants to know if you can clarify this for them because they want to be able to know how to respond. Yeah, so the rapture, um, some people will, will think that it's biblical, but it's actually not. Uh, the rapture, the teaching on the rapture, so basically that uh, God is going to come back and take uh, about 144,000 people uh, back up to, to heaven with him, and, and the rest will be left behind. Um, Carl Olson, very good friend of mine, a, cla a classmate of mine from graduate school, has an amazing book on this topic called Will Catholics Be Left Behind, which talks about the, the history of the rapture, which actually didn't appear until the 19th century is the first time we have any teaching about the rapture itself. So it actually is not biblical at all. Um, and there's also, a, a, a interesting, it's another book I just came across about the rapture as well. can't remember the author right now, but both books are very excellent if you want more information about what the, the rapture is. But, but don't worry. What we have to worry about as Catholics is the second coming of Christ, right? So when we die, we have the particular judgment where we're going to be judged by God. But then at the end of time, when uh, uh, God returns, or Jesus returns the kingdom back to the Father, we're going to have the, the second judgment, right? So, that, so that's what we need to be thinking about. So remember, Jesus says we don't know the day or the hour, right, when he's going to come back again. So instead of worrying about the end of the world, we need to worry about the end of our world, which, which happens with our death. But the rapture is, is not biblical and it's not Catholic teaching. 
Um, this is a really good question from Kim. She says, what is a Catholic's obligation to accept and not question Catholic teaching? Okay. So you, we have to talk about the different levels of Catholic teaching. Okay. So there's uh, the regular teaching, which you call doctrine. And then there's dogmatic teaching. Um, things that we have to accept with, with uh, the ascent of faith. Okay. So for example... Um, there are, so all, uh, uh, doctrines, uh, all dogmas are doctrines, but not all doctrines are dogmas. Okay. So for example, um, a dogmatic teaching of the church would be, for example, in 1950 with the assumption, right? The assumption of the blessed Virgin Mary. We believe that Mary ascended to heaven, body and soul, uh, into heaven. That that's, that's a dogmatic teaching of the church, uh, that Jesus Christ is present body, blood, soul, divinity in the Eucharist is a dogmatic teaching of the church. But there are also doctrines or regular teachings of the church that always don't uh, rise to the level of the ascent of mind and heart that we have to uh, re receive with, uh, with the fullness of, of faith and the fullness of truth. So, for example, um, you know, the, the, the church is teaching on, uh, you know, what color you wear during uh, the season. Like, like uh, right now we're in Easter, so it's white. You know, that color can change. You know, that, that's not a dogmatic truth of the faith. Um, uh, celibacy, you know, is a, is, a, uh, uh, is a doctrine of the church, but it's not, for example, um, in the Eastern church, you have men that can be married, uh, married men that can be priests. But in the discipline in the um, Latin rite of the church is that, you know, that, that priests remain celibate, priests remain single. After the example of Christ, who dedicated his entire life to service of the church. So what we have to pay attention to are those dogmatic teachings and matters of faith and morals. Okay. And those are the ones that we need to, to they have the ascent of, of our, our, our mind and our hearts. And when you say what we wear, you're referring to uh, ordained clergy during, oh, sorry. during yeah. liturgical it's, celebrations, right? Yes. Priests and deacons, like green, green during ordinary time, white during, uh, Easter and Christmas, you know, purple during Lent and Advent, that kind of thing. Beautiful. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with the dynamic deacon, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Brand new book for April from EWTN Publishing, for Eternity, Restoring the Priesthood and Our Spiritual Fatherhood by Cardinal Robert Seurat. Uh, we have to take a look at the truth head-on. The priesthood seems to be failing, explains Cardinal Seurat in this book. Uh, he has collected the writings of the greatest saints to help priests rediscover the essence of their priesthood so the people of God can renew their gaze upon them. 
For Eternity, Restoring the Priesthood and Our Spiritual Fatherhood by Robert Cardinal Seraf. New book from EWTN Publishing. It's available at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. It's no Behold the Man, but it's a good book. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Scott says, I've been listening to Catholic Radio recently, and I hear people talk about dying to themselves. What does that mean? Okay, yeah, to die to yourself. So we live in a world and in a culture that worships the trinity of me, myself, and I, (laughs) where where I am the center of all meaning and existence. The world revolves around me, you know? And so it's very self-centered. And and so what dying to self means is living covenantally. See, in a covenant relationship, it's when you give yourself away in love is when you truly find yourself in God. So that means sacrifice. The very nature of covenant is sacrifice. So Jesus chose his words very carefully at the Last Supper. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant. So a contract, which is what I described in the culture before, is an exchange of goods. A covenant is an exchange of persons. Uh, A contract says, this is yours and this is mine. A covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. It's making a complete and total gift of yourself to someone, and that someone makes a complete and total gift of themselves back to you in love that is free and faithful and total and fruitful. It's a love that gives everything. It's a love that holds nothing back. Why? Because Jesus held nothing back of his love for us from the cross. He gave everything, right? And so in order to live a covenantal relationship, a, la- a relationship of sacrifice, that means you have to die to yourself. So, for example, that's what marriage is about. That's what priesthood is about. In marriage, uh, I do, uh, I-, I try to bring out what's best in my spouse, which means I have to die to those things that focus on me, and I have to focus on on Christ, and I have to fo- focus on my spouse, and um, uh, dying to myself so that um, so that I can truly live my faith. Uh, in a covenantal way to give myself away to her uh, fully, completely in Christ. So I see my marriage as an extension of my Eucharistic relationship with Christ. So just the way that Christ died to, to uh, on the cross to give us life, we have to die to ourselves to bring life forward to others so that this, especially this uh, in our marriages, in our church, and in our culture, to really experience the depth of God's love and life. And that's ex- uh, experienced through uh, our relationship with Christ that we then share with others. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open lines at 833-288-3986. First up today is Carl, a first-time caller in the great state of North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Carl, thanks for holding. You're on with Deacon Harold. Hi, thanks for having my question. Um, there's this big five-syllable word in the Bible called sanctification. I'm wondering if you can expound on what that means. Yes. So sanctification uh, means to make something holy, right? Uh, so, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, um, where, where Paul says, uh, uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ show his love to her? He gave his life for her in order to sanctify her. 
So to sanctify something means to make it holy. Okay. And so uh, we can sanctify things and make things holy, like water, right? So we so when a priest or deacon blesses water becomes holy water, the water is then sanctified. And we can also become sanctified through the sacrament of baptism. That, that therefore we receive sanctifying grace, the grace that brings us into relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah, so there are many different ways that we can be sanctified. Obviously, the primary way is entering into intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and baptism through the saving waters of Christ's death and resurrection. Or we can sanctify things and objects like rosaries or water or other things like that. Does that help, Carl? I think so. Thank you much. You're most welcome. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, and that frees up a line for you at 833-288-3986. Joe is on Long Island in New York listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joe, you're on with Deacon Harold. Uh, yes. Hello. Good afternoon. Can you hear me? Yeah, go right ahead, Joe. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, my question is, uh, Deacon, is uh, dogma, the dogma and the doctrine. Uh, is pur- purgatory a dogma or a doctrine? I'm a Catholic. Okay, yeah, I'm that's, a, that's to... a dogmatic teaching of the Church is purgatory, is, is a dogma of the Church. So, so remember, if you're in purgatory, that means you're going to heaven, right? Because after death, you only have two choices, heaven and hell. But after death, we recognize the fact that we still may uh, have attachment to sin. So even though the um, the the, uh, the 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 sin that cuts us off from God's life, right? The mortal sin is forgiven. There's still residual effects, which you call temporal or earthly effects of sin. So those, even though we go to to um, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, receive forgiveness, we still have a desire to choose things which are not of God. Purgatory is where we purge that desire. So the only desire that's left is our desire for God, right? So so purgatory means you're going to, to heaven. Uh, and, and there's bi- um, biblical precedents for the understanding of purgatory as well. Uh, there's several places in the Bible that talks about um, you have to, uh, your faith will become purified, but only as through fire. Right. And so there's uh, different analogies that we have in, in the scriptures that point us toward the, the, doc, the, the, the church's dogmatic teaching about the, uh, the reality, the existence of purgatory. Does that help, uh, Joe? Yeah, it does help. Uh, I'm dialoguing with some Protestant people and they're telling me that, you know, that the, um, the uh, purging is through fire really only applies to the works and not necessarily to the person. Oh yeah, I see. I see what they're saying, but the the, the thing is, see, w- remember what it says in James: faith without works is dead, right? So I, I can say I love Jesus all day long. I love Jesus all day long, but but those are just words coming out of my mouth. If I don't actually show and witness to the power of God's love and His faith in my life, then then it's just words. It's meaningless, right? So our faith and our works are intricately tied together because our works witness to the power of our faith, right? And, and so the last work that we have to do is to rid ourselves of those things that separate us from God's love. Even the desire to choose that which is not God cannot exist in heaven. The book of Revelation is very clear. No sin at all can exist in heaven, not even the desire to sin. 
And that's what purgatory is for. So we we have um, verse like First Corinthians chapter nine, verse thirteen and fourteen, you know, which which points towards uh, the ch- the church's teaching on purgatory. Um, you know, uh, Revelation, uh, t- uh, like I said, just mentioned Revelation twenty one verse twenty seven, nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Uh, and so there are a number of other verses that, you, that we can point to that uh, that show us the, the biblical foundation for the doctrine of purgatory. God bless you, Joe. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. Keeping with our dogmatic discussion today on Open Line Monday, Leah writes in, what is the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation? Okay. Uh, So, uh, first of all, let's break the word down. Trans means across. Substantia comes from from substantialis, which means substance, essence, nature, or being. So, transubstantiation means across uh, the substance, across the nature, across the being. So, uh, and for, for example, in the consecration of the Eucharist and the holy sacrifice of the Mass, bread and wine, uh, you know, be, no, is no longer the, the the essence and nature of what bread and wine is no longer exists. All that's there is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The fact that it still looks like bread and tastes like bread and looks like wine and tastes like wine is what's called an accident. Right. Uh, that's a language of um, Socrates. Uh, sorry, Aristotle that talks about uh, the, the accidents. But the substance and the essence of what bread and wine is, is no longer there. All that's present there is God. That's transubstantiation. Consubstantiation, con means with. So what that teaches is that, for example, again, with, with the Eucharist, is that the bread and the wine after the consecration remain along with the body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus. So it's it's bread and wine and body and blood. That doesn't make that doesn't work for us because when we're adoring our Lord present in the blessed sacrament, if the bread and wine is still that means we're worshiping bread and wine, which is idolatry. And Jesus is very clear in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, you know, this is my body. Not this is also bread along with my body. This is my body. This is my blood. In John chapter 6, you know, whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood has life. He didn't describe it as a sign or a symbol, but the full reality of his existence um, in in the elements of what, again, appears to be bread and wine, but it's fully, truly, and completely God. And Kay wants to know, how can prayer be efficacious since we're told that God can allow bad things to happen for a greater good? Yeah, so um, first of all, what is prayer? The very essence is prayer is communicating with God, right? Just like I can't get to know someone deeply, personally, and intimately without talking to them, that's how we get to know God. That's how our heart speaks to God's heart, if you will, through the through the intimacy uh, of the relationship through prayer. Now, prayer is a dialogue, right? It's a two-way street. It's not that you know, we just pray and God doesn't hear, God doesn't listen, God doesn't answer. <clears throat> but God doesn't always answer prayers in the way that we think he should, right? God always answers those prayers that bring us closer into deeper intimacy with him. 
Now, sometimes when bad things happen, you know, that's because uh, God has to allow freedom. So we're free to say yes to God and we're free to say no to God. And when people say no to God's love, life, intimacy, and communion, bad things can happen. But God allows that to happen, allows free will to happen, so that a greater good can eventually come out of something that is evil. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you. And unfettered access to a Catholic deacon who is also an itinerant missionary preacher and is also a theologian, for crying out loud. Pick up the phone. 833-288-3986. We're talking to Kay, who uh, wants to know how prayer can be efficacious if God can allow bad things to happen for greater good. Yeah, and just to, just to wrap that up, wrap that thought up uh, before the break, um, I was going to give the example of mothers against drunk driving. Uh, the woman that started mad, uh, whose who, son was killed in a drunk driving accident, and back then, uh, drunk driving laws weren't very strict, and so because of her efforts, um, drunk driving laws became uh, much more strict, and thousands of lives, thousands have been saved because of her efforts. So the sacrifice of her son led to laws that were passed that now protect thousands and thousands of, of, of people. So again, God used something bad to bring something good out of it. Um, the, 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 the problem that we have is that it's not always that black and white. It's not always that obvious. And sometimes we may not, not, go, not know the, the, um, the full extent of, of the purpose of, of evil until we get to heaven. You know, but, but God, again, does not allow human beings to, to misuse or abuse their freedom uh, unless God can bring something greater out of that uh, tragic circumstance. I know you're not a canon lawyer, but Janine writes in, if a priest breaks the seal of confession, what happens to that priest? He is automatically excommunicated. Okay, so there's no trial, there's no you know, written warning, there's no, he's just, he's, he's just a straight excommunicated. There's two types of excommunication uh, in canon law. One of them uh, is after a period of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, kind of back and forth and discernment. And the other one is just, you know, like abortion. You know, that's automatic excommunication. Um, uh, and, and same thing, breaking the seal of confession, automatic excommunication. Now remember, excommunication doesn't mean, uh, is, is a means of punishment. It's not because you're cut off from the church, you're going to go to hell. That, that's not what excommunication is about. It's a very severe punishment that allows a person to discern um, the, what they've done wrong, and, and it's really to help to bring them back to the church. You know, by separating themselves from the church, it's serious enough to recognize that I actually need to, to be back in the church, to belong to the church. And so, again, it's, it's a punishment. It's uh, to, uh, designed to help bring people back, to, to bring the sheep back into the fold. Uh, you know, Deacon, in our culture today, here in America especially, uh, so few people take the high road morally that I think we have almost got to the point where not taking as low a road as anybody else is our new definition of virtue. And Carlos, watching us on YouTube, says, 
Could a couple about to get married live in the same household as brother and sister, practicing chastity and sleeping in different rooms? What's the church's view on this? Uh, yes, uh, that that is definitely um, possible. Um, you know, the, the whole idea is not to engage in intercourse prior to marriage because that act, that conjugal act, is the consummation of covenant relationship. Because what you're doing in matrimony, and uh, matrimonium, by the way, the, the word marriage, matrimony, literally means the state or condition of motherhood. So, so what you're doing in the matrimony, you're actually inviting God to be the heart at the center of your marriage. And so we see, when we look in the book of Genesis, how God um, created the covenant relationship of, of matrimony, we see that he, in Genesis 1, he creates man and woman, and then he um, creates the covenant bond between the two of them. Right? So he creates them out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and then he establishes the covenant bond between them. Then he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, so the consummation of the relationship happens after the the uh, the the covenantal bond is established between the couple, and so that so the, the church teaches that all the way down to this very day that that beautiful conjugal act of physical relationship happens after the covenantal bond, and so yes, it is possible um for uh, uh, uh for uh, uh, fiancés to live in the same house you know living chastely in bedrooms but i don't think that's very practical uh, i think the temptation will be too great because the you know the god has built into us that that innate attraction uh for men for women and women for men that that comes from god uh and that strong desire to procreate is also there so i think the temptation is too great i think it's better to live apart why? You're kind of taking that 30,000-foot view because living apart allows you to discern more objectively. You know, is this the person that I want my kids to be like? Is this someone that my friends respect? Is this someone um, uh, that's, that's not looking at porn? Is this someone that's going to help get me to heaven? So you're able, I think, to look more objectively and discern more deeply when you're not living together than when, than when you are, even if you're attempting to live chastely. Maria's a first-time caller. She's in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Maria, you're on with Deacon Harold. Hi, Deacon Harold. Thank you for taking my call. I was calling because I have a family member who's a devout Catholic, and I was wondering if a Catholic goes to another Mass, a Lutheran Mass, and receives the Eucharist there, is that considered, like, does she still need to go to a Catholic Mass, or is that considered a mortal sin because she didn't go to a Catholic Mass? Okay, so, okay, Maria, that's a great question. So here's the thing. Um, uh, Catholics are obliged to attend the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass on Sundays, okay? So um, if you go to a Lutheran or Episcopal or a, a Protestant denomination that has a form of, you know, quote unquote Eucharist, it's it's actually um, not allowed by by the church. Um, you can go, like for example, when my sister is also former Catholic and, and she's a Baptist now. So when I go to visit her, I'll go to a vigil mass on Saturday, and I'll go to her church on Sunday. Okay, and if and if her church did have some form of 
quote unquote Eucharist or, or bread and wine, you know, uh, bread and grape juice or something like that, I would not receive because to receive means that you are in communion, right? And, and so if, if when your friend goes to the Lutheran church and receives their communion, I mean, there's no problem for them going as long as they still go to a Catholic mass. There's no problem with them going to a Lutheran service, but they should absolutely should not receive because that reception symbolized the fact that they are in communion. And sadly and tragically, Maria, we are not in full communion with, with many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, which is, again, it, it's sad, it's tragic, but that's the reality of where we are right now. So again, your friend needs to go to a Catholic mass, receive the, the Eucharist worthily, uh, and then if she wants to go to with a friend to a, a Lutheran service, no problem. You know, go ahead and go. But but you but she should not receive their their form of communion. God bless you, Maria. Thanks so much for the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Johannes is watching us on YouTube. And he says, I know that St. Cornelius the Centurion received the Holy Spirit before he was baptized, but does this happen today? After the rite of election, I believe I received the Holy Spirit that changed my heart. Oh, absolutely, Johan. Oh, there's no question or no doubt about that. In fact, it's receiving the—see, okay, we talk about reception of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that leads us to, to, to Jesus. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus leads us into the heart of the Father. But when we, the Father recognizes that desire we have for Christ, he'll give us the Holy Spirit that'll push us toward Christ. A perfect example of this, Johannes, is my dad, okay? A lot of people know the story about my dad. You know, we're, we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of Mother, uh, Mother Angelica's birthday. And um, my father was a pagan, unbaptized, didn't go to church, um, you know, drank, um, you know, uh, led to a, a, a very messy divorce in my family. Uh, in fact, there was a time I did not speak to my father for 18 years. So my father was not a man of God at all. Uh, when my first series started on EWTN, someone from my, because I was born in Barbados, someone from my home country contacted my father and said, isn't that your son on TV? And so my, my father started watching. And then he, he watched the second time, except instead of watching me, he, he got the, the time wrong. He was watching Mother Angelica. And th again, this man never went to church, never been to anything Catholic, but he watched the entire hour of Mother Angelica. And when I asked him about it later, I said, Pop, why did you keep watching? He said, she just made so much sense. <laughs> right? So Mother Angelica reached a man like my dad. That's the Holy Spirit at work, Johannes. There's no question. Now, the, my father was not Catholic. He, he was not baptized. He did not receive the, the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit that initiated him into the fullness of the faith. But he received enough of the Holy Spirit to start him on his journey toward the fullness of faith in the Catholic Church. So, yes, the Holy Spirit can definitely act in people's lives even before they are members of the church. Greg wants to know if it's a sin to be homosexual or is it just a sin to be unchaste? Yeah, so it is it's not a sin to have same-sex attraction, okay? Um, but it's a sin to act on that desire. So, for example, I'm, uh, I think women are the most beautiful creatures that God has ever created. 
And I have the most beautiful wife in the world. Sure, Jack would argue with me because Johnette is actually quite beautiful as well. <laughs> but I think all women are beautiful. Now, because of that, and because I'm still a person of sin, I may have a, a, a desire when I see another beautiful woman to be attracted to her. That's normal and natural. Nothing wrong with that. But if I act on that desire and, and, I, and I have a relationship with her, that's when it becomes sinful. That's when it becomes a problem. Same thing with same-sex attraction. Our brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted are our brothers and sisters. We are called to love them with the love and the heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no question or doubt about that. Uh, but the problem is acting on that desire. Uh, is is what is when it becomes sinful. Does that make sense, Greg? Well, Greg was an email, so we'll. Uh, oh, email. Okay, yeah. We'll sure. assume that that completely answered his question. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Pat is a first time listener. She was watching. Uh, she was watching uh, Call to Communion television earlier out of Marietta, California. Uh, Pat, you are on with Deacon Harold. Well, hello. I mean, this this is very unexpected. Truthfully, I, I'm being very honest about it. I've never watched your segment. I haven't really even watched the call to communion very uh, maybe just a few times. But um, my question is basically, uh, my daughter and I went. I, it had been a long, long time, and I do faithfully go to church every Sunday and many other things. But I hadn't gone to the um, the Thursday, Holy Thursday, uh, Mass for quite a long time, and we decided to do that. Um, my disappointment, it was a beautiful Mass, but my big disappointment that kind of at the end bothered me so much was, and maybe it shouldn't, but because of so many things going on and changes that I, I really don't appreciate, like I said, I'm, I'm just being honest about it, but... Um, this had to do with uh, the washing of the feet. I expect mm -hmm. there to be 12 men having their feet washed, um, and there weren't. Some of them were, were women, and I don't know why. It bothered me a great deal, probably because of so many changes that are taking place, because to me, that was the, the reenactment, basically, of what Christ did on Thursday, Holy Thursday. And as far as I know, there were no apostles who were women. And so that's my question. Is is that right? Because it's almost like a distortion. Okay. Great question, Pat. And, and, and I hope you do have an opportunity to listen more to Call the Communion or to Open Line uh, so you can learn more about the beauty of our Catholic faith. So, Pat, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the rubrics of uh, of Holy Thursday— when it talks about the wash of the feet, the word that's used is vir in Latin, V-I-R, which means male. So it's supposed to be 12 men representing the 12 apostles. And here is the biblical foundation for that. In Exodus chapter 30, and it's repeated in Exodus chapter 40, it says that uh, Moses was to set up a laver, which was a big bowl that was used for washing. And it was set between the tent of meeting and the altar of sacrifice. So when the priests and the high priests, that's the, today would be the, the priests and the bishops, when they came out of the tent of meeting, they would wash their hands and their feet and then offer the sacrifice. Uh, 
So what Jesus was doing in John's gospel by washing the feet, he was doing two things. Uh, he was doing two things, Pat. He was giving them the model of how they were supposed to serve the church because only a humble servant was the one who washed feet at the time of Jesus. When you went to someone's house, it was the lowest ranking servant who came and washed your feet. So he was given the model of how they're supposed to lead the church. That headship, leadership, and authority is rooted in service. The other reason why he was washing the feet, because he was instituting the priesthood. That He did it through the through we saw in the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke through the uh the offering of the bread and the wine that we come to body blood soul divinity of Jesus but also by the washing of the feet because remember as i just said the they washed the the priests washed their hands and their feet before offering the sacrifice so Jesus was doing that also to help in, as a way of instituting the priesthood so so you're right um, if, if you're, if you're going to do the washing of the feet, it should be 12 men representing the 12 apostles and the institution of the priesthood. Thanks so much for that question today, Pat. We really appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's Monday. That means the journey home tonight, 8 Eastern time. Former atheist Mark Lozano talks to John Mark Grodi about his journey home to the Catholic Church. That's the journey home tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Jay is next up, another first-time caller in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Jay, you are on with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Yeah, um, so I recently found y'all station, and I was wondering what y'all meant by the difference between communion and like a non-denominational church that I go to and a Catholic communion. What's the difference? And a- okay, v- very good, Jay. Well, first of all, when, when uh, uh, in a non-denominational church, we talk about communion. Um, often they they do they offer bread and wine, which is just regular bread you can buy in the store and grape juice, um, and, and they do that because when they they see when Jesus says you know do this in memory of me, they're like oh Jesus says to do it, so we just have to do it, and so they just offer regular bread and grape juice, right? Uh, in the Catholic Church, we take Jesus' words literally when he says this is my body, this is my blood. We offer so the bread and the wine that we offer because we we offer what Jesus offered at that Last Supper, which is unleavened bread and and wine produced by grapes. So it's not actually grapes; it's actual wine. And through the the words of Jesus and what's called the Epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit, uh, bread and wine cease to exist. It, it, it becomes fully for us as Catholics the body, blood, soul and divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not just receiving a sign or a symbol or a metaphor or an example. We're receiving the Jesus Christ himself. We are at Calvary. We're standing at the foot of Calvary at every Mass when we're receiving Jesus. We're receiving the same Jesus that was crucified on the cross, the same blood that flowed from that cross and flowed from his side. We receive that at every Mass. Sadly, our Protestant brothers and sisters do not accept that, so they just symbolically represent what Jesus did at the Last Supper with actual bread and, and grape juice. So that would be at the surface. Uh, uh, well, you, we can go deeper into what communion actually means and how the Eucharist brings us into communion with each other and, and, and with the church. Um, so, I, But I hope that uh, answer helps you, Jay. What about the apostolic succession aspect of that? Briefly? Yeah, so, so, yeah, so 
um, we see in John chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 19, when Jesus appeared in the upper room on the day of the uh, Easter Easter evening, he breathed on the, uh, on the apostle and gave them the power and the authority to forgive sins in his name. Again, instituting the priesthood at the Last Supper by uh, giving him his body, blood, soul, and divinity, washing their feet, giving the power to forgive sins. All of these things Jesus was doing was instituting the priesthood. So that priesthood started by Jesus Christ is passed down through the 12 apostles all the way down to bishops and priests to this very day, okay? And, uh, when the Protestant church broke off from the Catholic church, the apostolic line of succession was broken. So in order to have a valid Eucharist, a valid communion, if you will, you have to have uh, a priest consecrate the, the, the bread and the wine. It becomes his body, blood, soul, divinity. Since that line of succession is broken with our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, you know, the, the bread and wine is simply... Uh, bread and wine, not not the body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus. God bless you, Jay. We appreciate the phone call. Derek is up next, another first-time caller in Terre Haute, Indiana, listening to Salt and Light Radio online. Derek, you're on with Deacon Harold. Yes, sir. My question is about uh, the book of John. It was a reading uh, last Tuesday, I think. It says, the wind blows, Jesus said to Nicodemus, must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills. And you cannot, and you can hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Could you tell me what that means? Okay, so the context is what he's talking about with Nicodemus. There, Nicodemus is talking about being um, Jesus. Says you must be born of water and the Holy Spirit. So Nicodemus understands Jesus' meaning. Wait a minute, you can only come out of the t of, out of the womb one time. How can a man go back in his mother's womb again and be born again? So Nicodemus heard Jesus literally when he said born again. But what Jesus meant is a spiritual rebirth by water and the Holy Spirit. You see? So, so Jesus, what is, well, there's different uh, meanings of what Jesus says, but the ba basic one is with regard to Nicodemus's inquiry is that the the Holy Spirit, of course, is present there when, when you were born, right? The Holy Spirit is present uh, to, to bring forth life. We pray in the Mass, we uh, credo Espiritu Santus Dominum et vivificantem. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. But the Holy Spirit is not restricted simply to physical human birth. Jesus is saying the Spirit blows wherever he wills. So the, the Spirit can also create life spiritually and that's what baptism is so when we're when we go into that baptismal font and we're we, we're, we're doused by that water we, we we uh the stain of original sin is removed and we're brought into uh the, the, we receive the sanctifying grace that brings us into relation with jesus christ in the church okay so that is a spiritual rebirth and there's many many teachings of the fathers of the church and in the catechism that talks about the the the, the, the baptism being like a birth canal Right, so you have to go through the the, the waters of baptism, go through the birth canal, and we were born into this relationship of intimate, personal, loving, and life giving communion with Jesus Christ. Does that help, uh, Derek? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate yeah, that call welcome. today, Derek. Uh, our friend Lulu, watching on YouTube, says, "If a woman is a surrogate mother, does God think of her as a mother of that child?" Yes. Okay. So uh, yes. So. She's a surrogate mother. She's the mother of that child. But um, surrogacy is not something that we advocate in the Catholic Church. So surrogacy means that 
for, for those listeners that may not be aware. So if a woman for some reason cannot conceive or cannot carry a, a child in her womb, they, they have a process called in vitro fertilization where some of her eggs are removed combined with the uh, genetic material from her husband and they create uh, babies outside of the womb. They take some of those embryos and plant them inside the uterus of another woman and that woman carries the baby for the woman who could not conceive. So um, that, that violates uh, the church's teaching, the moral teaching, uh, uh, and ethical teaching uh, on the nature of human sexuality. Uh, but uh, the, the woman who is pregnant is the, the one who, she's not just a vessel, right? Because remember, we're, we're, we're uh, bodies and spirits, right? So, right? so she is the mother of that child, even though um, uh, the, the woman biologically may not be her mother. Just like if you adopt a child, right? If you adopt a child, that's your child. Even though it's not biologically your child, that is still your son, that is still your daughter. And the same thing would apply here. And really quickly, just about a minute left, I kind of hate to do this to you, but uh, Barry wants to know, please respond to the accusation that the Mass being an unbloody sacrifice is not effectual for sin, since the Bible says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Well, Jesus does shed his blood. Um, when we receive when we receive the 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 blood of Christ, the holy sacrifice of the mass, it is definitely is uh, effectual for the forgiveness of sins. There's no, there's no question or doubt about that at all. Um, so again, it's not a sign; it's a symbol. It is the real blood that was shed on that first uh, Good Friday on Calvary. That is the blood that we received in the holy sacrifice of the mass. And the blood makes atonement. Right, Leviticus chapter 17. The blood makes atonement by reason of the life. So God shed his blood in his life so that we can have life forever. Deacon Harold, thanks for being so gracious with your time. You're most would, welcome. Would you thanks for us, having me. Would you leave us with a blessing? May Almighty God bless you, keep you, and protect you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until then, God bless.